We don't take that music for granted every Sunday. Thank you so much, members of the choir. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and of Hosea, this Michael of Moresheth, lived and served in the latter half of the 8th century BC, one of the great 8th century prophets. He did not have the culture nor the advantages of refinement that Isaiah of Jerusalem possessed, for he grew up 30 miles from that city, a peasant really in the country. He became the champion of the poor. Micah's message is direct. It's rugged. It's sometimes blunt. But in that message, he often reaches lofty heights, as in the fifth chapter, for instance, when he tells us that a Messiah is coming, when he prophesies, even in this 8th century B.C., that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, will come out of Judah. And then he reaches the heights once more when he comes to that sixth chapter. He puts it in the setting of a courtroom in those first verses, saying to the people who had transgressed against God, to the people who knew that their God holds their breath in his hands, that they live every second by his pleasure, but still they had not glorified him. So he put it in a courtroom setting. And he said to this willful, disobedient people, stand up then and plead your case. Plead to the mountains, plead to the hills, plead it to all of nature and to God himself. And after having thus created this setting of dialogue between God and his people. He then turns the spotlight to God himself, who also raises a question. What have I done to you? Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And follows his own question with a recitation of his saving acts. I delivered you, he said. I brought you out of Egypt with my own right hand. I, I delivered you from bondage, even when you had begun to love your chains, and, and, and even when you had become content in your slavery. I, I, I brought you out. I delivered you. Even when you were willing to give up your freedom for the garlic and onions of Egypt, I still brought you out of bondage. And I gave you teachers, leaders and teachers. Who can forget the mercy of God when one thinks about teachers in our youth? He said, I gave you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. All of you had a model. 
All of you had someone to go before you, someone to teach you. I, I delivered you. I, I gave you a teacher. And he said, when the nations wanted to curse you as with Balak who sent for Balaam to curse this people, what did I do, my people? Why he turned their curses into blessings. And instead of a curse, the man Balaam through God blessed that people, Israel. And then what did I do, he said, between your last camp in the wilderness and your first camp at Gilgal in Canaan? Why, I sent you Joshua. I sent you a Christ-like figure. When Moses died, I gave you a Joshua, Jehovah's salvation. I, I sent you someone to guide you and to enable you to conquer the land. And after that very impressive reminder of all that God had done for His people. The sixth verse of that sixth chapter tells us that the people were impressed with their sins. They began to accept the guilt of, of how they had misbehaved, how they had rebelled against this gracious God who had done so very much for them. And, and would you believe it? They, they wanted to respond with ritual activity. Oftentimes when we're faced with a catalog of our shortcomings, our first response is to do something religious. I, I need to give more. I, I need to go to church more. I, I need to pray more. And, and so they, they thought, well, maybe some ritualistic behavior will save us. You know, some people still believe that. I, I, I know really pretty smart people who believe the salvation of our society consists of more ritual and, and, and they want to have more ritual and they, and they chide us because they say we don't have enough. And, and so he said, maybe ritual will do it. If a ram suffices as a sin offering, what about thousands of rams? And if we're supposed to bring the oil of sacrifice, what about rivers of oil? Maybe we ought to do like the king of Moab. Maybe we ought to sacrifice our firstborn. Uh, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Maybe, maybe we ought to go back to human sacrifice. How can I make a sin payment? How can I, I, I make an atonement for the sins of my life? Rituals have always been an aid to worship, but the church is slipped when we've made ritual an object in itself. It is an aid to worship, and, and we're grateful for ritual, but although ritual can express real religion, it can never replace it. And so God was not impressed with their offer to engage in more ritual. 
for ritual had become a kind of a, a national health insurance policy or accident and policy. How could God let this happen to me? I go to church every Sunday. I, I give money. I work in the church. How could he possibly let anything happen to us? And so after hearing their willingness to engage to save themselves through ritual activity, God gives them an elementary religion. He says it this way, He has showed you, O man, what is good. For what does the Lord require of you except to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now that's basic, reasonable religion, isn't it? Do justice. Don't just bring your sacrifices. Do justice. In the second chapter, Micah talks about people who, who lie awake all night uh, thinking up some new scheme to take somebody's house or somebody's property. That's right, he said, you lie awake at night uh, uh, trying to think up some new evil thing to do. And, and with the light of the dawn, you're out there hustling to pull it off. but I want you to do justice. That's what the Lord requires of us in every year. Not long ago, just before we started in this homeless initiative, I was reading USA Today, and in it, a, a young couple representing thousands of young couples, this couple had a combined income of about, about $60,000 a year, he was a resident uh, moving toward a um, medical certification. And uh, she was uh, in some company that produced a salary of about 40000 Together it was about a $60,000 income. And, and they had written in asking for uh, an expert in financial planning to draw up a budget for them. Their goal, of course, was to have the American dream of a home. They wanted their own home, and, and that's a legitimate dream. Yeah, I can understand that. And this uh, expert planner had, had prepared a budget for them. Perhaps you saw it, and it was supposed to be representative of, of the kind of budget that, that millions of young couples could imitate and follow. I don't remember all the ins and outs. I, I remember so much set aside for this, that, or the other. I remember two items in it. I remember that each year with that budget, they would save toward the fulfillment of their dream over $16,000. They would set aside for their church, for charity, and for others, $148. And that was being touted as a real fine program for professionals just beginning their careers. And as I thought about that, and I, I remember the teachings of, of Micah and what he said about the poor. When I remember that a nation is, is judged by God, not in terms of its gross national product, or the size of its mansions, but instead how it treats its poor. I remember that Micah said, 
that God would plow the city of Jerusalem like he would plow a field because of their disregard for the poor. And if the people in America take that kind of plan seriously, and if we would have the audacity before Almighty God to set aside toward our dream more than $16,000 and be content to give $148 to the church, to the poor, God will plow our land like a field. And He will not let us stand because our God, like the prophet Micah, is a champion of the poor. He loves the poor and has given preferential treatment to the widowed and to the fatherless and to the sojourner among us. I remember in preparation for the writing of my doctoral dissertation, I had a clinical experience in the Community Relations Commission office at the City Hall in Atlanta. I remember so vividly some of the calls we received in the way of complaints across that city, and I would go out with them to check them out. I, I remember one, not because I want to remember it, I just haven't been able to forget it that had to do with a certain woman who owned a great deal of property down in the slum section of the city. Her tenants were always complaining about the condition of the houses and the cost of the rent. I remember going to one particular house one February day when it was, was sleeting and ex it just terribly cold. We drove up to a house and, and, and it was way up off the ground and you could see the, the plumbing leaking, the cold water, because there was no hot water in the house. She had long since quit furnishing any hot water. That was the first thing I saw, that water running underneath the house. And then I saw a baby standing behind a broken uh, pane in the window, uh, enduring that winter's blast. And then as we were coming up into the yard, I realized that we were going to get horribly uh, muddy because the, the, the yard was a quagmire. It had just filled the entire yard and, and made it just a pile of mud. And a little dog came out barking, a little dog that had no place to lie down except the mud, and the, the mud had become matted in his long hair, and it was frozen, so he had little bricks of ice pounding his sides as he ran out to meet us. We had gone to check on the validity of the complaints of those tenants. And we had a summons for that landowner to do something about our property. But we had a horrible time finding that woman. Turns out she was one of the most active church people in all of the city. And every time we tried to find her, she was away at some conference, at some Bible study, uh, leading her, her circle we had an awful time. We finally uh, could not deliver it. We had to send it by special courier to run her down. And I thought about all of those, all of that worshiping which she was doing, and it, and it was making a mockery out of worship. Injustice can do that. It can take away our integrity. 
and make our worship of Almighty God an empty gesture. I don't know if you saw that UPI story not long ago about Rockdale County High, but I really appreciated that story. It was a sports story with a new twist. If you, were, if you read it, you know that, that they won the basketball championship in that little county and proudly displayed that state championship there in, in, in their, uh, the, the lobby of that high school. And then they discovered on investigation that one of the players who had played but 45 seconds in the first postseason game was ineligible. They didn't know he was ineligible at the time, but subsequent facts revealed that he was ineligible. He was not an impact player. He was not on the first team or even the second team. He had only played 45 seconds. But he was ineligible. And the coach reported it. And when the coach reported it, they came and took away their trophy and gave it to someone else. They said, Coach, why did you do it? He said, I did it because people will forget the score. And in the years to come, they'll even forget who won the championship that year. It won't really matter. But you don't ever forget what you are inside. What you are inside has to do with your integrity. And integrity is all about justice. And that's what Micah was saying God wanted from His people. Whatever you are supposed to give someone, give it to them. Whatever you owe someone and whatever your position is, give it to them. It's fair-mindedness in action. And then he goes on to say, love mercy. Don't just be merciful, he said. Love mercy. And this picks up where justice leaves off and adds another dimension to it because this is not just fair-mindedness. This is love in action. This is kindness. One of the most cruel men I've ever known was always inside the law. Kindness is a necessary ingredient for a Christian. Not just do right, but do it in a kindly, loving fashion. Someone has said that this, this commandment to, to love mercy and to be kind is a willingness to give that which is not required or even expected. Now, the last judgment, the people wound up on the wrong side of the king because why? They were not kind. Why, why was the Good Samaritan good? Well, you could easily substitute kind instead of good. He was kind because he didn't know that man in the ditch anything. The religious leaders had already passed by him, the priest and the Levite. Here he was, a, a man of another race, not even liked by these people to begin with. It wasn't expected of him. It wasn't required of him. But he went and bound up his wounds, set him on his own beast, and saw to his needs. He is the kind Samaritan. 
Love, kindness, he is saying. And then walk humbly with your God. Maybe this is the heart of real ethical religion. Maybe, maybe this is, is really what it's all about. Because when you talk about walking humbly with your God, you're talking about the source of kindness and you're talking about the, the source of justice. This is where it all comes from. As you see yourself, you take a proper view of yourself, that is humility, in relationship to your maker, and as you live with him, it is productive of all of these other good things. That's why the Bible says Enoch walked with God, and then in Hebrews 11 it says Enoch pleased God. We please God when we walk with him in lowly obedience yielding our will to his will. And in that relationship of trust and obedience, these other characteristics are the byproducts. It's wonderful to get buttressed by all kinds of experts, isn't it? I, I saw a psychologist the other day catching up to this uh, insight in the Scriptures. This man said after some considerable study that children who go to Sunday school and church have a higher personality rating than children who don't. And parents, uh, adults who go to Sunday school and church have a higher personality rating than, than those who don't. In other words, if, if you don't have your child in Sunday school and church, then, then you may not be abusing them in the classical sense, but you're depriving them. Because it's as we learn to walk humbly with our God that these other byproducts of kindness and justice and love, these things come to the forefront. Now, the truth of the matter is, that for many people, this Micah 6.8 has become their creed. And they'll tell you in a minute as they pass by your church, I know what the Lord requires of me. I know what the Lord expects of me. He expects me to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. I do all that. I don't need your church. I don't need your creed. In reality, of course... There is no humbly walking with God because to do so is to discover the truth that there is none righteous, no, not one. And to accept this teaching of Micah, lofty as it is, without adding the Christian dimension, is to deprive ourselves of much of its truth. For the last word in the gospel is not requirement. If requirement is the last word, think how harsh that would be if what we have to live with is what God requires of us. In reality, the gospel brings into view not just the requirements of God. It doesn't alter those requirements, but it brings the gifts of God into view. That's the glory of the gospel. If all we had were requirements... Where would we be? 
We would be like that man Jesus told about who was given his talent. And he recognized that the God who gave him what he had was a hard God, an austere God, and so he ran and hid it in the ground. Requirements paralyze us. We say, what's the use? I know the requirements. I tried. I failed. That's all heaven has to say. It's all over. That's why people prefer trivialities. That's why they don't want to worship. They don't want to think about God. They certainly don't want Him to be a part of their daily lives. The only way they can be cheerful, the only way they can keep their equanimity is to forget about God and all of His requirements. But go back to our text. Micah doesn't have God address this requirement to the general public. Micah says this requirement is addressed to my people to the people who have had the experience of deliverance, to the people who are in a covenant with God. God does not expect anything of us that He has not given to us. God expects that which He has given. Therefore, it isn't a matter of meeting the requirements. That's not first. First is to trust God that His Spirit might come and take abode in us. And then when His Spirit comes, He brings all of these other gifts which we in turn can give back to God. Our God doesn't remain on high, standing tall to mark down our transgressions. Our God has drawn near, has bent down to help us. We are His people. And when we are His people, we see that the fruit of our relationship to Him is justice, mercy, and walking humbly with our God. We do not meet requirements. We yield ourselves to Him. And then the fruit of that relationship is a life of justice mercy, and humbly walking with our God. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is, O Zion, haze thy mission high fulfilling. We'll sing the first, second, and last stanzas. Let those who wish to join us in the pilgrimage of faith here in this church Beginning with faith, not requirements. Those who would walk the walk of faith, would you come as we stand and sing?